And now, coming to you live from the grocery room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, a day late, a buck short, months behind schedule, it's the Coot Street Podcast! Just to let people know, we are revenant, we are still around, we are thinking about all of you out there wondering what to who to vote for for the Locus Awards or the Hugo Awards or the uh, World Fantasy Award nominations are open. There's all kinds of uh, things for people to be thinking about uh, in terms of what they've read last year. And uh, since I haven't had a chance to say this on the podcast, congratulations to my partner on his recent award for Best Anthology for the best of the year. And I, as I said to you privately, I think it's a special honor to get a Best of the Year, to get one book in a series to get the Best Anthology of the Year award. Well, I've got to say, I don't know. I mean, I kind of think yes, but also like no, because it's like it's like the... the the best of everybody else's editing work, you know what I mean? It's like you're, you're, you're synopsizing down a whole lot, so it makes it kind of easier for you than somebody who's doing, you know, like an original or something. Uh, it's a way of thinking, but the, on the other hand, there's a sense that um, a lot of us need to have – I hate to, use, hate to use the word gatekeepers, but they are gatekeepers. I can't read as much short fiction as I'd like. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tor.com alone would keep me reading for the rest of the year. Uh, let alone all the online venues. So I have always, and this before you were doing this, goes back to the days of Judith Merrill, if you want to go back there. I have always depended on year's best anthologies to kind of guide me in a certain direction and let me know what what trends are. And the only thing I have to do, and I learned how to do this with most editors, is figure out the kind of quirks and biases yeah, of, yeah. Of, of different people. But once you have that, it's. I think it's an incredibly valuable service. Yeah. Well, certainly, I, I, I guess, I mean, in some ways, the Coot Street podcast pretending to provide any kind of news service is laughable because yeah. when we're weekly, we can do that, and we've been weekly in the past. But right now, we're sporadic, mostly because of me. And that means that sort of it's a bit silly, but there are two things that are going on this right now. I mean, you've touched on one of them. I know that Dublin... 2019 has just sent out their Hugo va- ballots, the, the actually online ballot. Mm-hmm. And I, in fact, I voted this morning. So I, I started voting this morning. I started voting this morning. And one of the things we should remind people of is that you don't have to sit down and spend two hours doing it. You can, you can return to your ballot, change your votes, uh, add votes all the way up until August. So I expect to finish my ballot in a few days, but I only started it this morning. You just need to vote one the Cood Street podcast, save, close, and move on. It's very straightforward. That's true. Um, And I mean, since since I'm in Chicago, I know how to do that many times. (laughs) So yes, uh, and the important thing, as you say, about that is, first of all, uh, the Hugo votes are just open. You can revisit your vote, and you've probably got like a month or something to do the voting. I forget the exact cutoff date, but you've got a good amount of time. Mm-hmm. If, however, you fall into that cross-section of humans who can nominate for the World Fantasy Awards, and I think it's like member of last year's convention, member of this year's convention, maybe member of next year's, I don't know, something like that. Something like right. that. Don't need to be corrected because it's fine. But uh, you can email in your nominations, but you must do so by the end of the month. That's a, that's an interesting uh, time-binding thing. As a matter of fact, I had not noticed that until I got two paper ballots in the mail. I don't think I've ever gotten paper ballots from any convention in the last several years. Oh, I've got uh, them from all of them. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, I've certainly had them from Royal Fantasy before. I usually uh, vote on, uh, on, you know, like email it in, 
And it's going to be really interesting. I mean, I know what I would like to see win. Uh, I'm going to reiterate one of my all-time classic campaigns. I saw somebody mentioning possible people that listeners could nominate for the Life Achievement Award. Uh-huh. And I would like to once again exhort everybody to consider Howard Waldrop. Absolutely. One of the great short fiction writers uh, of the 20th century in our field. Uh, someone who is, isn't working as much these days, but is, is deeply deserving of the recognition and falls into that sort of sad category where you kind of, you want to do it sooner rather than later if you're going to do it. And that doesn't mean that there aren't uh, other wonderful people who could no, be considered, but I would recommend uh, him. Well, one of the issues that came up years and years ago, for example, when, when Stephen King won it was nobody was ever going to argue that Stephen King hadn't earned one, but he was very young to earn one. And, uh, one of the things that is a consideration when you're a judge. Uh, it's, that shouldn't be the only consideration. You don't want to give the award to the oldest surviving writer who's done anything worthwhile. Uh, but you don't want to feel that you've missed out on something that you should have. You don't want, you don't want the world fantasy life achievement to look foolish. Uh, I, was at a, I was at a memorial program for Gene Wolfe here in Chicago last night, mostly local writers, some local fans. And, um, and I, a few weeks ago, I was, I was at his funeral. The, the, the appreciation that he had for the awards he got, the Life Achievement Award meant a huge amount to him. Uh, the Science Fiction Hall of Fame meant a huge amount to him. Um, the uh, special program we did here in Chicago for him a few years ago. It's, not, it, it, it's certainly worth noting that writers, even writers as distinguished and uh, respected as Gene Wolfe, are really appreciative of these things. And they do make a difference in, in, in one's attitude toward one's work. And I've heard that from, from more than one life achievement winner. Yeah. So, you know, nominate away. Uh, you mentioned that the Best Science Fiction and Fantasy of the Year, Volume 12, won the Aurealis Award. Or yes. It was pre- presented with the Aurealis Award. A few weeks ago, and I would point out that the uh, there was a, a slate of wonderful works that were nominated and that won, and you can see the, you know, that information elsewhere. And if I remember, I'll try to link it in the show notes. Excellent. Uh, and of course, the Hugo Ballot. But have you been have you been reading the books, Gary? You survived the enormous Neil Stevenson book. I got criticised online because that's all online's for. Because I said the Neil Stevenson book looks bigger than God. And then someone said, you seem excited about the Lewis Shiner book that's big as God. Why, do you not, uh, why are you not excited about the Neil Stevenson one? And I'm going... Because the Neil Stevenson book thinks it is God. Well, because I'm not going to read either of them, Gary, realistically. Well, okay. But the point is, it's, you know, uh, no, I, I, I read things. I find myself in one of these moods, and I know it's cyclical, and I suspect all readers are cyclical to some extent, where for a, a while I just don't want to read this stuff anymore. I have a couple of massive anthologies in front of me. And in a normal world where I didn't have deadlines, I would put those on my shelf and read a story a week for the next five years, probably. Um, but the, the one I'm actually referring to, which looks like an excellent anthology, uh, is the Vandermeer's Big Book of Classic Fantasy, which is a kind of textbook in the early history, in the, in the pre-Tolkien history of fantasy. International fantasy, uh, a lot of stories have never been translated before. It's making a point for fantasy, similar to the point they made in their big book of science fiction, that these fields were not invented in England and America, uh, that, uh, that there is a huge international tradition, a lot of which I'm not familiar with. I want to, it's, it's the kind of book I want to spend time with. Um, there are, as you mentioned, year's best anthologies coming out now. There are 
story collections coming out that are very good. The, I was looking at the uh, the other awards we haven't talked about are the Locus Awards. The the long lists, I don't know whether they call them long lists or short lists, but the lists for the Locus Awards are very impressive. That's just a really strong list of of of, of um, collections, novels. It is. I mean, novels. It, it, I'm not sure if this is the first year that they've gone for just releasing the ten finalists, or it's the second mm-hmm. year or third year. I think they've uh, done it for a couple of years now. Because for it, it used to be that they were releasing the top five. Yeah. Which. You know, it was nice. Uh, but yes, there's a, a great batch of books uh, uh, that have been recognized. And I mean, I don't think we'll go through it at all, really, because that will take no. all of the next hour to go through the many works that have been uh, shortlisted. But congratulations to the finalists. And I would strongly recommend that you, you know, I mean, look, if you're looking for stuff to, to read, it's been like the last three years they've done this top 10 thing. Mm-hmm. And there are some great books in there. They overlap with the Hugos. They overlap with the Nebulas. I think the Nebulas are being presented soon. Mm. I think the Nebula Weekend is quite soon. And, you know, you can see that the books that are beginning to get a consensus as being the most recognized. I'm not going to say the best because, first of all, I don't believe in it. Second of all, there are books that are being overlooked, and I do think they belong there. But books like Black and Shitty by Sam Miller and... uh, Space Opera by Kat, Kat Valenti, Yoon Lee's Revenant Gun. These kind of books are getting you know, re- recognized around the world in all of the major awards, so are worth seeking out if you're looking for something to read. Well, but Have you read true. anything, Gary? I've, well, okay, I've been reading some interesting things. I mean, my sense at this point in this year, when I looked, uh, this happens to me every year, I look at all the great books that came out last year, and I feel a little disappointed in this year so far because I don't see as many. Oh Lord! There are some... Oh no, no. But okay, no, continue. No, but no. no. Although I'm not, I'm not talking about what's coming out this year. I'm talking about what I've read in the first three months of this year. Um, there is one classic short story collection. Obviously, it's already a classic. It's Ted Chang's second story collection, which I noticed in today's New Yorker magazine is reviewed by none other than Joyce Carol Oates. Uh, who liked it, and more impressive than that, seemed to understand it. Um, and more impre- interesting than that, kind of said it wasn't as good as the first one. Uh, she did, and and the reasons she gave, I think, were good reasons. Yeah. Um, she and, and she she zeroed in on some stories that I thought were minor stories, but I, I think she had a very good sense of what he's doing. Um, and uh, the other novel, the, the most, I'm just thinking without looking at anything, re- the novel which. I've read this year, which is sticking with me more than any other novel so far, is uh, Chen Kafan's Waste Tide. Yes, which, which, which got a very negative review, well, a rather negative review from our Locust colleague, Liz Burke, on Tor.com this week. Oh, I did not see that yet. Interesting. Well, it's, she actually raised an interesting point, and I'm glad you brought it up. And I'm, I, I'm very loath to synopsize her argument because that's not uh-huh. fair and I don't have it sitting in front of me to make sure that I do it justice. But let me put it this way. She raises gender issues with uh, Waste Type and mm-hmm. in fact, with some of the other translated works that she's read from China. And that raises a very interesting question about how we read translated works when they bring in maybe perhaps different sets of values uh, from 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 their their you know their native countries that, that strike us as being perhaps 
you know, challenging or unacceptable, but are mm-hmm. nothing to, you know, to them. I think uh, I, I can understand the argument, I think, and I can see the argument in terms of some Ch- Chinese science fiction. The anthologies I've read recently uh, included an impressive number of stories by women writers, but some of the gender issues uh, probably we would be more sensitive to. I will last for example, there's a, a movie which major, major Chinese science fiction movie which not is only being released on Netflix in the United States and has essentially been dumped there without any announcement is called The Wandering Earth. It's based on a series of stories by Sushin Liu. It's not based on the three body problem, which several people have said online. And in it, it it's in many ways it's just awful. It's a lot of fun to watch. It's it's one of those things like watching I don't know, Disney's The Black Hole, where you have to put everything you've ever learned about science out of your mind. And then you have a couple of female characters in it who are just appalling, frankly. They're they're returning to the stereotypes of the hysterical young woman who can't do anything uh, and and, and needs to be protected. Um, That could be, I don't know where that comes from. It could be the Chinese movie industry trying to create international blockbusters by using a formula that's worked within China. Uh, it could be something which is in Sujin Lu's stories, which I've not read, um, or it could be just an absolute blind spot on their part. Um, that being said, by the way, The Wandering Earth is just a lot of fun as long as you don't use your mind at all. <laughs> well, I mean, that's true of a lot of science fiction. I went to well, the other true. movie that, that, that's been quite successful uh, called Endgame, and mm-hmm. the, the same could be said of it. You know, but, you know, a lot of fun if you don't think about it too much. Right. And the other thing, well, as long as we're, we, we very seldom talk about films here, which is one of the reasons we don't have thousands of listeners, I'm sure. I enjoyed Endgame, but when I came out of that movie, all I could think of was that was satisfactory. And then it occurred to me that all you can expect of that movie is that it's satisfactory. And when the four sequels to Avatar come out, all we'll be looking for is that they're satisfactory. That's a very low bar, isn't it? I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure that I necessarily actually, agree with actually, you. Actually, actually, not. If, if you if, if you remember the second trilogy of Star Wars movies, not satisfactory. Satisfactory <laughs> is at least a bar. I will say, actually, some younger viewers would tell you that those Star Wars movies are satisfactory. I know. So there's a perspective. Okay, yeah. Um, look, I think. Endgame is both a entertaining piece of franchise art and a terrible film. You know, mm-hmm. you, you can't watch it by itself. You know, it's meaningless no. in and of itself as a standalone thing. It's a fragment. It's a piece of serial television, really. In fact, yeah, you really. could argue that the, that the great achievement of the Marvel Cinematic Universe is that it's brought television to the big screen. Or television storytelling to the big screen. And not just yeah, the television storytelling in the sense that it was a concluding episode of a series. It was like watching the last episode of MASH or the last episode of the Mary Tyler Moore show. It wasn't even as coherent. It wasn't close to being as coherent as the last episode of Battlestar Galactica. Uh, uh, but it wasn't trying to be that. that. That said, having come out of that film, I came out of the film having enjoyed it. And I, then I thought about it. Then I read some more about it. And I've come more and more around to the fact that it's actually nowhere near as good as people are saying it is, not the least because it treats its own characters badly. It's not fair to them. It breaks and disrupts character arcs in ways that aren't fair or 
reasonable or mm. whatever else. And often for not a lot of storytelling benefit. The end of the Iron Man arc is not a good one. The handling no. of the Thor arc is not a good one. And you could kind of go through and pick, pick others out. Um, it didn't, it wasn't enough to make me stop wanting to watch Marvel movies, though I came close to it. I mean, I'll watch Spider-Man Far From Home when it comes out next mm. month. In terms of the Avatar announcement, I mean, this, there was this announcement they're taking three years off making Star Wars movies, I think. And we're going to get mm-hmm. a 2021 or 2022 Avatar movie, then a Star Wars movie, then an Avatar movie, then a Star. And the first thing is, I'm not on, on, on board for Avatar at all. My, I have this suspicion that the only people anybody, you know, the, the only reason anyone cared about Avatar at all back in the day was because it looked phenomenal and it was its big technical thing. I don't know anybody who pines for a single thing about the characters or the world or even barely remembers say, oh, it. I was having a, a conversation with my partner Dale about that, and we were saying we were trying to remember the name of a single character from Avatar. We kind of remember what they look like because the CGI was thrown, but I don't remember. I don't remember who lived and who died. I know there was a big tree in it that got blown up, and there was a bad guy on a on, on a bulldozer. But there was no there was no setup for a character arc at all. I mean, essentially, it was a movie that was designed apart from the issues about its being. It's borrowings from Paul Anderson's Call Me Joe or from Le Guin's The Word for World is Forest, all that. You expect that in a Cameron film, now that we know that Cameron grew up as a science fiction fan. But it didn't have even the emotional heft of Titanic, which at least was a soap opera. Yeah. And you're left with a bunch of people who are called the Navi, maybe? I don't remember. And they're blue, and they're in a flying, beautiful-looking place thing, right? And yeah, I, I just wonder if Avatar, if the Avatar trilogy of sequels, which are all being done at once, are going to be a colossal faceplant. I wouldn't be surprised at all. I mean, the, the, the idea, like I say, the idea of uh, creating the world is a good one. But the world was created not like a narrative, but like a painting. Avatar was terrific visually. Watching Avatar, my memories of Avatar are like my memories of going through uh, and, and actually, specifically, an exhibit of, uh, of um, Magritte's paintings for you, because he has floating islands of stone with castles on them and that sort of thing. So it looked great, but I don't think there's anything there that, uh, that, that draws in the narrative. And again, it was one of those things, and I have the same issue. It's not an issue. It's an awareness that this is the science fiction more or less like the illustrations to amazing stories in the 40s were to the stories inside the issues. Yeah. They're illustrations of ideas. Uh, yeah, but, they're, yeah. but you know, th- th- there's nothing provocative about the idea behind Avatar. No. Um, so, so the Crit Street podcast, if it still exists when, when mm-hmm. Avatar 2 comes out, already is not impressed with Avatar 2, is doubtful about the MCU. Maybe you're not. I am. I'm doubtful. I, the, the MCU I don't feel connected with in my capacity as a science fiction person. Um, they're science fiction by virtue of, at some point, the the Venn diagram of, of comic book superheroes overlapped with science fiction. Uh, and that may have happened as soon as Superman. It may not have. But it's uh, the Marvel Universe is its own thing. I mean, I was amused, interested to watch the Marvel Universe sort of co-opt all of... Um, uh, 
all of Norse mythology to some extent with the Thor thing. I think, you know, maybe if the Marvel Universe decides to do a production of Wagner's Ring Cycle, it would look great. Um, but and it, it has a pretty good plot, as a matter of fact. Maybe they ought to look at that. Um, but maybe. as, you know, maybe. I mean, and, and one of the other things it has, it's a star vehicle. Um, you don't want to see another Iron Man resurrected without Robert Downey. But hang on, but you say it's a star vehicle. The weird thing about it as a, as a star, ve- star vehicle is most of the actors who go who've been, who went into the MCU originally weren't that big stars. They are now. And actually, even now, I want you to think about this. Is Robert Downey Jr. that big a star when he's not Iron Man? Uh, probably not. The Sherlock Holmes movies were not very successful. He's actually a very good actor. He did yes, a he very is. interesting version of The Singing Detective, uh, I think, for the BBC a couple of years ago. And, of course, he was in, so he was always a well-respected actor, but he was never a box office draw in that sense. No. Uh, so, I mean, we'll see. I mean, and Chris Hemsworth is a bit and blah, 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 blah. The thing that amuses me more than anything about the whole MCU, and I'm sure everybody's already turned off now because they enjoy these movies and they're yeah. irritated with us, but uh, the thing that amuses me is I remember very clearly in the mid to late 1980s, I was a hardcore, as you could imagine, science fiction reading kind of fan, and I had a bunch of friends who were comics fans. Uh-huh. And they would occasionally prattle on when we were out together and we'd stop in a comic shop for them to pick something up about some waffle, about some bunch of characters doing some kind of thing. I vaguely remember Secret Wars or something being mentioned at some point. And there's some endless cast of characters that, frankly, nobody cared about beyond the most hardcore comics readers that are now the middle of their culture. People are going on about Buddy Thanos, for crying out loud, and this kind of thing. And the next round of movies that are going to star, star even more people you've never heard of. Yeah, well, that's the idea. It's the elementals to team up. You know, you're like, oh, well, one of the one of the one of the keys to casting movies like this, I think, and I think Robert Downey was a brilliant uh, casting decision for Iron Man, is that you have to have an actor who conveys the irony inherent in the character. This is a principle discovered. Actually, it was probably discovered in the Thin Man movies with William Powell, but certainly when the James Bond movies uh, began with Sean Connery, who clearly was ironically contemptuous of what he was doing in most of those movies. He had a wonderful sense of humor that said to the audience, this is complete nonsense. I know it is. Go along with me. Uh, when you when you replace an ironic actor like that with a sincere actor like, let's say, Roger Moore in, in those movies, the series begins to fall flat. So the basic thing that I came away from the Avengers feeling was that it, like most of the best Marvel movies, is a pretty good comedy, but essentially that's what it is. It's a comedy. And so you need good comic actors with good timing and good delivery. Um, you need some characters that are purely comic relief, like Groot. Uh, and you need um, a kind of rhythm of, um, of slapstick comedy throughout the whole thing. Uh, there, there, there's, there's another film I almost went to see today, um, which is... Um, which is whose title I don't remember. It's a it's a uh, I don't know how you pronounce this Wuxia film, one of these uh, Chinese martial arts films uh, called The Shadow, and it looks terrific. And I was, so I looked up a review it, and the point that this review was making was those films, uh, and to some extent, to a much lesser extent, the the Marvel films are the only place you can see choreography. The uh, the argument has been made that uh, martial arts films 
are more connected to the Hollywood musical than anything else because you get to see really skilled people doing graceful moves on screen uh, without a lot of editing. And I first discovered this. There was a film several years ago called Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Terrific and just terrific movement on screen. And that kind of thing actually is something that the Marvel films sometimes attempt to do through editing and almost never succeed at. So the last thing, the, the last critical thing I'll say about uh, Endgame, which I did enjoy, was that it was not a graceful movie by any measure. No, no. Where will it be on your Hugo ballot in two thousand and twenty? Do you think, Gary? Depends on what other films are there. Um, I mean, I have no particular problem. I don't think I supported Superman when I, did, I think Superman, the original George Reeves, may have won the Hugo in that year. And I remember thinking at the time, this is, you know, this is science fiction with a really, really generous definition of what science fiction is. Or it's, or, and then this is, this is the old fart in me talking, or it's a surrender of science fictional values to comic book values. Comic book science fiction is not the same as science fiction science fiction. I've got a weird question for you, Gary, because it, which sort mm-hmm. of sits somewhere in this thing. We got this uh, an email this morning, those of us who are paid members of the Worldcon in Dublin this year, inviting us mm-hmm. to vote for the Hugos, to vote for the 1941 Retro Hugos, of which we will say no more, uh-huh. and to uh, vote in the site selection for 2020. Yes, and I've not 2021. 2021. 2021. 2021. Now, 2021, the sold, as far as I'm aware, bid is Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. So my question is, why would we vote? There's only one thing running. Uh, well, you can't. This is the thing about site selection. You can't do write-in votes. Mm-hmm. You can't say, hey, let's let's go to McMurdo Sound because I'd like to go there. It sounds <laughs> cool. Uh you have to wait for somebody to put together a bid. And if there's no other bid, I don't see any point in voting at all, except there's a possibility of no convention, I suppose, no choice, none of the above. <laughs> well, no, I think we're, we're fairly solid because we know, for example, that we are go- – obviously we're going to – well, Worldcon, not we. I don't know if we will go, Gary. We'll see. But mm. probably we will go. We're going to go to New Zealand next year, right, to Wellington. Right where a small group of us will, will, will gather together because it's Wellington's far away, a small group will go. Uh-huh. And that means the follow and then the following year, because it's the sole Worldcon bid, we'd go to DC. Mm-hmm. I'm less than sanguine about this, but right now there's only one bid for 2022 as well, which is not that far away really. It's easy to think it is, but it ain't that far away. And that's your hometown. Uh, Chicago vote uh, puts together a bid about every ten years, it seems. Yeah. Uh, so that um, doesn't surprise me at all. And and, and, and they put on a good convention. Yeah. Uh, and they would, depending where World Fantasy is that year, I would go. Why not? Uh huh. But and then the year after is is the year that could change everything, and that's twenty twenty three. What's happening in twenty twenty three? Well, there are three bids for twenty twenty three. New Orleans, which would be fine. And may well uh-huh. win because that's how it is. Uh, uh-huh. Nice in France, which would be great, and Chengdu great. in China. Hmm. Which would be more difficult for most people to get to than Wellington, um, or more Maybe. challenging. I think. Maybe. I, yeah, I, I, it's hard to say. I mean, it's. Uh, oh, I mean, we need I to would... make a make make a convention announcement, Gary. Oh, we do. Yes, Do the 2020 Cruise Street Convention will be... No, 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 no. no, no, no. 
No Kutu Convention. No. Have you made an official decision about the 2019 World Fantasy Convention, Gary? Will you be attending in Los Angeles? I, I, I am, at this point, probably not planning on attending. Hmm. I definitely won't be attending, because I'm already overcommitted and it's driving me insane. You're overcommitted. There are, as, as I've mentioned before, I don't like the idea of any convention in an airport hotel, no matter how nice the hotel. I know how nice the airport is or is not. Uh, and this is an expensive year between I just spent a week in Hawaii with, uh, with, with my partner and Joe and Gay Haldeman. It was wonderful. It was not cheap. It's not going to be cheap to spend a week in uh, a couple of weeks almost in Ireland. And I probably won't go to ReaderCon this year either. Um, so, um, by and large, no, I, I, I don't think I'm going to go there. I do okay. hope to be at the Locus Awards in Seattle in about a month. Ironically, two weeks before I'll be there. Ironically, yes, that's too bad. Um, I speak, you should, you, come, you should come, Gary. You should come I join should, us I, on the, um, on the, um, uh, at, at, at uh, Clarion, you should come hang out. Hang you're, you're, Jack. You, you and Jack Dan are teaching a week of Clarion. Is that right? We, we are. We are indeed. And you should, you should come join us. I was talking to our mutual friend Karen Warren about this because she was in Chicago last week, and we were saying the same thing. That wouldn't make sense for younger aspiring writers who have already passed the entrance exam, so to speak. They've been selected to be a Clarion student. Wouldn't it make more sense for them to want to hear from editors than from fellow writers, some of whom might be quirky, some of whom might know how to teach writing, some of whom have no idea how they themselves write? Um, uh, the stories I've heard from Clarion are really uh, almost always positive in the long run, but, yeah. but not necessarily every writer makes a good teacher. Yeah, well, that's always going to be the tr truth. The, you know, the people who are good teachers. But you, you, but, you and, but, but you and Jack are both editors. I mean, Jack is also an excellent fiction writer, obviously. Yes, yes. And you can give them a sense of what you would be looking for in your next original anthology, what you would be looking for in a year's best anthology, what you would be looking for for Tor.com. It seems to me that a young writer wanted, would want to hear from you more than from somebody who's already made it in the field as a fiction writer. I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I can't talk to that. I don't know. I've, 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 I've my doubts about, about the value of that. I, I, right now my feeling is I want to get like a hundred people to come along like every single day and then we'll be uh -huh. able to absolutely wallpaper over the inadequacies of the tutoring that I'll be able to provide and it'll be great. <laughs> That's 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 my all new improved theory. If I can do that, then we'll, we will be rocking. But you're looking at actual fiction, which is what you do all day, every day, anyway. Oh, man, so yeah, and I've read some good stuff too, because I'm working on uh, an anthology right, well, two two anthologies right now, but one that's due in at the end of June, and one that's due in October. And the June one's coming together right now. People are sending stuff in. Just got some interesting stories uh -huh. in, like yesterday. Got one from Anne Leckie and. Rachel Swirsky in and some other stuff. So that's great. Uh, I just got finished work on a Zen Cho novella, which is coming out from Tor probably Excellent. next year, I think, uh, amongst a lot of other stuff and a new batch of Tor.com stories. But, I mean, people are sitting around going, how come Tor occasionally closes? We get so much stuff, right? 
and I'm only one of many editors who are working there. And I saw the schedule for the stories that I just acquired, and they're like May next year. And you're going, that's why why we occasionally close. Well, here's a here's a question which uh, you may or may not feel that you ought to answer, and then it has nothing to do with pay rates, although that probably is related. Has Tor become the Omni of the new century? Ooh, it's my prejudice to say yes. I don't know that it's 100% true. It would be close. I mean, I, I don't know what the actual page impressions on the website are, but I mm. feel like it is as close to an Omni that as, as we have. I mean, it's it's huge. In, in terms of the exposure, it, it's huge because not everybody is going to read every novella or story that appears on Tor.com or every essay that appears on Tor.com, but it essentially is a magazine. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, there yeah. are so many page hits that every story – I mean – there's a, there's a point about Omni, the circulation. I talked to Ellen Datlow about this, and she was well aware of it at the time. Um, if 800,000 people read a copy of Omni or 1 million or whatever it was, that doesn't mean that all 800,000 are going to read the story that she selected that month. But it does mean that the story gets exposed that many times. Yeah. And I think the number of exposures in Tor.com probably must be close to that sort of figure by now. doesn't mean you have to read the story, but you'll yeah, see I mean, that it's there. I think a lot of the, well, I think Tor has a very high impression rate. I, I, mm-hmm. I, the information I've heard is that quite often Clark's World does as well. It, it, I feel like Tor.com is both the highest paying and the highest exposure regular market for fiction in the field. Uh-huh. Whether it's quite the same as Omni, I don't know. Because it's a whole, such a different time, you know. Uh, Omni, you still had to pay for your fiction and all this kind of stuff. So, Well, that's true. And you had to buy the magazine or subscribe to the magazine. And a lot of people who bought the magazine were looking for science articles or various other things. I mean, to some extent, Omni was the science geeks version of Playboy, yeah. uh, which published very good fiction. But a lot of people didn't buy the magazine for the fiction. Um, it just strikes me that uh, that what Tor.com is doing is something uh, – as big as you could do in today's fragmented markets. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you no longer have uh, – the cir- circulation of the print magazines has been declining and declining and declining uh, and will continue to do so, I'm sure, and, and maybe it will re- reach a certain bottom. Well, hang on. No, that, 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 has, that can't go ch- on challenge. It's not okay. strictly true at all. Uh, when you combine print and digital, some of the magazines are doing okay. So hmm. we have to be careful about perpetuating that idea – that um, magazines are just dwindling away to nothing. Well, I, I didn't say that. I said the print magazine versions of these, the print magazines themselves, are in trouble and maybe leveling off from what I've seen in uh, yeah. the year in review this, this this time. But my point is, in general, that there is not a unified market. Everybody who wrote science fiction wanted to sell to Omni uh, back in the 80s. Uh, everybody wants to sell to Tor.com now. But even with that number of impressions, uh, I don't think there's a unified science fiction market anymore. It's, it's a lot like watching Game of Thrones and realizing something like, okay, 30 or 40 million people will watch the last episode of Game of Thrones and then be reminded that 105 million people all at once watched the last episode of MASH when it was on. It's true. That size audience, that unified audience no longer exists anywhere. Yeah. Well, it's like I was looking at the – because – it was what we were talking about earlier. I was looking at Avengers Endgame's 
inevitable march to become the number one box office movie of all time. Uh-huh. Right? Uh, it, I think Avatar is at the moment with $2.79 billion in box Something office. Like that, yeah. And I think they're about 2.4 or so for Endgame at the moment. So it'll probably bypass that. But if you go back and look at ticket sales to the extent that they have ticket sales information, mm-hmm. none of the Avengers movies are top 10. Nor That's is Avatar. I mean, the, the, number one, the number one ticket sales movie of all time remains Gone with the Wind. Really? And not by a small That's margin. That's absolutely fascinating. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, if Gone with the Wind charged, ex- charged what we charge today and charged extra for 3D and that sort of thing, you're probably right. Uh, and to, to some extent, the number of views of a movie is something which is not measured by gross income or even by ticket sales. Uh, because if you really wanted to see the most viewed movie of all time, you would have to add in TV showings around the world over a period of 50 years. I will confess that when it was on Easter, and I've done this every Easter for the last five or six years, I watched at least a portion of Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments, which (laughs) holds up absolutely no better than you would expect it to. (laughs) And the special effects are charming and sweet in a way. But when you think this has been shown in the United States on network television, it's a four-hour movie. It's been shown on, I don't know, the Sunday before Easter or maybe Easter Sunday for probably 40 or 50 years now. Uh, and it gets a few million viewers every time, and it sold millions of tickets yeah, in the box yeah. office. You know, that could be the most viewed movie of all time. I'm sure somewhere there's in in Wikipedia there's somebody who's calculated the most viewed movies of all time. And I suspect you're right. I suspect Avatar is not really even among them. Yeah, I mean, Avatar is so far up because uh, – or made, made as much money as it did, at least in part, because – it was a 3D movie. You paid more for 3D yeah. tickets. So the box office was higher. Um, so well, that's true know. of everything, yeah. Um, it was not only a 3D. It was a, 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 the giant screen things, uh, the IMAX. It was an IMAX. Yeah, yeah, I, I saw it on IMAX. Don't forget that um, international box office wasn't the thing it was in 1943 or something that it is today. So you didn't add in $100 billion worth of sales in China or something. Uh, no. But on the other hand, you didn't have major international film industries in any other countries to speak of. Basically, basically when, I, when I was younger, when I was in college, you could see an occasional French and German movie in an art house theater. You would not see a Chinese blockbuster like The Wandering Earth or like the one from a few years ago, The Great Wall, which is not really – That doesn't worth... mean they weren't making them though, Gary. It no, they weren't they... seeing them. You weren't seeing them, but my point is they, the, the other countries besides the United States, to some extent Britain and to some extent France, did not have the kind of international distribution that everybody has today. That's true. I think that's true. And it's, it, it would be interesting to take the same question and shift it over to science fiction fiction. What do you suspect is the most read science fiction novel or story Ever. Novel. Frankenstein. Is it actually the most read or is it the most claimed to have read? Wouldn't surprise me if it's the most read. It's assigned in an awful lot of schools, Gary. Well, okay, it's assigned. That's true. And And if you're going to say of the modern era, Mm -hmm. which is probably more what you're really asking, of the modern era, it would, I would bet it's Ender's Game or June. Um... 
I would tend to agree with that if you exclude what you just included, which is books that are assigned in colleges, uh, books that show up on college and even high school reading lists. Now, Ender's Game does show up on some of those, but I think we'd have to add in Kindred and probably Flowers for Algernon. As a novel? Uh, the novel is what gets assigned in school. Ender's Game is widely assigned in schools. has huge yes, sales to schools. I, th I think less so than it did a few years ago. Maybe so. Um, um, but... Uh, yeah, and I mean, I'm excluding Bradbury, who I largely don't think of as a science fiction writer and, and as having created science fiction. Well, I mean, Fahrenheit 451 is science fiction, uh, yeah. and it's very, very widely read, and it's been... And then you get Vonnegut, I guess. Yeah, but I don't know if Vonnegut is that widely read anymore. It's, it'd be interesting to uh, go back and look at some of these uh, things. I was looking at the Library of America edition of Vonnegut, uh, and some of them uh, hold up very well. Interestingly enough, what I think holds up very well are his early novels like The Sirens of Titan and uh, his uh, one sort of Holocaust novel, Mother Night, which is not even science fiction. I'm not sure Slaughterhouse-Five is being read that much these days. I don't know. I don't know. Um, but, I mean, it's an interesting question in terms of what's read the most. I mean, this is why, I, I mean, Frankenstein's an easy one just because it's a classic, it's assigned, and because it's been out so long that there's a greater opportunity for it to have been widely read. And it's, it's out of copyright, so it's widely reprinted. Well, you could make the same argument for The Time Machine, which I would guess is the most widely read of Wells' novels. Possibly so. Possibly so. Um and then, you know, if, if you skew into fantasy, then you do bring in, you know, The Hobbit and things like that, which are very, 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 very widely read. Right. Um, and the fantasy, it's and this is one of the things we've talked about before. In, in the last 20 or 30 years, it's almost an order of magnitude. The markets are almost an order of magnitude higher than the science fiction markets. A successful fantasy is phenomenally successful. How long is it since you read June? I... I reread part of Dune when I was looking at the um, yep. 1960s Library of America volume. It didn't take me long to realize that it was <clears throat> obviously too long to include. And my sense is that it held up better than I thought it would. Okay. That's interesting. I mean, the, 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 the ideas behind it, the ideas of, of dry land ecology, which he had started out with, are much more pro prominent in the book than I than I had remembered because I remember thinking, okay, Dune, the great ecological science fiction epic, just happens to take place on a desert planet that has dope that everybody wants. Uh, apart from that, there was not a lot of ecology. Actually, he worked out a lot about uh, how, about the Freeman, especially the the the, the Baron Harkonnen sort of. Uh, contest of wills among the various houses was less impressive to me, possibly because it's so familiar from so much science fiction and fantasy since then. Uh, so politically, it's a much less sophisticated novel than A Song of Ice and Fire. Sure, sure. But then again, George, George learned from that novel, so, so did everybody who came after it. Uh, yeah. I'm trying to think whether I've read anything of particular merit. I'm drowning in books. You read Guy Gavriel Kay's new book recently and reviewed it for It's us. wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. Um, mm -hmm. 
you should have. I, I was supposed to have been sent, but I never showed up. But you should have uh, Annalyn Newitz's new book. It just came a couple of days ago, in fact. Yeah, I think it's coming out um, in September or November or something. Whilst this has been the year where I've had to buy uh, author copies of my own books, uh, I did get finally get a complimentary copy of the best of R. A. Lafferty, which I've yet to see, but uh, there it is. Have they not sent you yours? You should have got them. No, I should probably ping them about that. Yeah, 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 yeah. You should. Uh, not least as because long as long as the, the the publisher sent them out, so you should have got one from the mm-hmm. publisher. Because I listeners, to, to make this less waffly for you, which is almost impossible, uh, Gary was kind enough to write the introduction to the closing story in the best of R. A. Lafferty, Days of Grass, Days of Straw. Yeah, thank you very much for giving me the one story that nobody else wanted to write an introduction for because it was so bizarre. But it's one of the best And now I will read from Gary's introduction. Oh, my God. Days of Grass, Days of Straw first appeared in New Dimensions 3, the third in a series of rather adventurous anthologies ended by Robert Silverberg. There we go. You know, which is another point that um, we should mention. Silverberg gets a lot of credit. We we talked a lot about Terry Carr and Groff Conklin and Judy Merrill. And so Silverberg was an important editor and bought a lot of interesting stuff. But as long as we're plugging things, the Library of America will be plugging this uh, as long as you let me. But in addition to my two-volume series of novels from the 60s, they're publishing a separate paperback of Lafferty's Past Master oh, okay. uh, with an introduction by Andrew Ferguson. Every once in a while, the Library of America does what – Internally, they call one-offs books that are not officially part of the Library of America, but that they want to publish. And they've done uh, Lisa Yasek's The Future is Female, for example, is not an official book in the sequence of Library of America. Um, And they've done other similar things, and they're going to try uh, with Lafferty because they were very impressed with Lafferty, which raises another issue. Because when I'm dealing with those people who are absolutely delightful people to deal with and – almost every way, uh, they are nevertheless literary, traditional literary people. And and this is not news to them because we actually had a panel discussion on this. People who had edited for them, Peter Straub and Lisa Yasek and Brian Edward and myself. It's interesting to see what the literati, and this is kind of the establishment literati of the United States, what impresses them about science fiction and what doesn't. They were obviously very impressed by Philip K. Dick. and when I started sending these novels to them for the for the 1960s, um, I think the ones that the one that really impressed them most because they'd never heard of him was Lafferty. Yeah, and they were only looking at Lafferty as an American writer, not as a science fiction sure. writer. Um, they were very impressed with Samuel R. Delaney's Nova. They were very impressed with uh, Joanna Russ's Picnic on Paradise, uh, but they at least knew those names. Lafferty seemed to come out of them. From out out of left field. Well, then they should do a book of selected stories. Uh, they probably should. And one of the things I'm dealing with right now is the question. I get a lot of suggestions uh, from people about, you ought to put this in the Library of America. I don't put anything in the Library of America. <laughs> I pitch ideas to them like yes, everybody yes. else does. You put things in the Library of Gary Wolf, and that's about all, right? <laughs> I have a fairly good sense of who they are likely to do volumes of in the future, even though um, I'm either not at liberty or I don't know to say what might or might not be in the works, uh, in the, in the works. I know they're interested in Octavia Butler. I know they're interested in James Tiptree. Um, 
I they may be interested in Lafferty. They may be interested if uh, if Chip if, if Samuel R. Delaney and I have any influence on them. They might be interested in Theodore Sturgeon. Uh, but it raises a question which I think is interesting in terms of the way science fiction is perceived. It's like Joyce Carol Oates reviewing uh, Ted Chang. What science fiction books impress people who don't read science fiction? Mm. Uh, the literate, smart people who don't read science fiction. And it's, it, it turns out not to be things like Stranger in a Strange Land or Dune. It turns out to be oddball things like Past Master or uh, Picnic on Paradise or or some of Philip. No, Philip K. Dick's things were were there largely because a board member really wanted them there, I think. I would bet that, that, that mid-80s to early 90s, uh, Waldrop would uh, impress them. Waldrop would impress them. And Waldrop is somebody who just really needs to have the reputation which you have been saying for years he he deserves. Um, Let me ask you a question. I'm going to derail you. I'm okay. Going to pick you up off your area of responsibility. I mean, okay, so we talk about mine, yours. This is such a shambolic podcast with no... Mm you know through line to it at all we, don't we might as well bop around in amongst the things that are happening as we do this pick up podcast people mm-hmm. is the order links have gone up for another product that you're associated with and mm-hmm. that is Gwyneth Jones's book on Joanna Russ for um, the University of Illinois right? Illinois Press yeah yeah, the modern and it, it, it's one of the. I think it's going to be one of the two big contenders for the Hugo for best related work in 2020. That's my feeling about it. I reckon it's going to be it and one other. So my question is, at this stage, when listeners should be running off to pre-order this book even now, it, in its singles and its t- doubles, and everybody who's got their own podcast, everybody else should be doing it. Tell us about Gwyneth Jones's book on Joanna Russ. Um, it's. A very individual book, uh, in, in the sense that it, she, she read she read everything but Joanna Russ, but she read it as Gwyneth Jones would read it. And let me let me let me make this analogy. Um, if you, I could get in trouble for this, but I'm going to make it anyway. Uh, we've talked about and with Alec Navalny Lee and and his book Astounding. If you wanted to find out what happened with the founding of modern science fiction from 1937 to roughly 1945 with John W. Campbell, you need to read this book. Uh, There are critical scholarly books on feminism and science fiction. If you want to understand the kind of discussions that led to the, uh, I'm not going to say the invention of feminist science fiction, but certainly the dialogue that generated all the uh, uh, interest back in the, um, 60s and 70s, I think you really need to read Gwyneth Jones's book, partly because she talks about Russ's stories and, and how important they were. She talks about Russ's criticism. She talks about Russ's relationships with Tiptree and Le Guin and Delaney and Zelazny and other people. And uh, there's a whole chapter uh, about what is uh, now known among historians, I guess literary historians, as the Cotros. I think it's the Katru, K-H-A-A-T-R-U Symposium, which was a discussion. Today it would be a massive online discussion, but back then it was a discussion uh, via letters and fanzine columns and uh, responses among several writers about, uh, about women in science fiction and about the creation of a feminist science fiction. There's a whole chapter in uh, Gwyneth Jones's book, 
that deals with that. Uh, it's an interesting, it, it was a fascinating discussion. I think most of those uh, documents, a lot of them may be available online, but distilling this into a kind of um, narrative that fits in with the shape of Russ's criticism and, uh, and fiction is something she does that maybe nobody else could have done. And certainly nobody else could have done in such an interesting way because... Well, I was going to ask. I mean, a lot of academic books, frankly, are of most interest to academics. Yes. And a I lot agree. of them are not immediately entertainingly readable. One of the reasons that we cherish the Julie Phillips biography of James Tiptree is because it's a really readable book. One of the mm-hmm. values that Alec Navalli brought to his book on Astounding is it's a hugely entertaining book. And... What about this? How is it as a reading experience? I mean, you've been a reader and editor for it. Is it dry? Is it enjoyable, no, it's not entertaining? Dry at all. Well, interestingly enough, one of the blurbs, which I think is on the website now, is from Julie Phillips, uh, who was one of the readers on, uh, on, on Gwyneth's book. One of the things we've tried to do in the series, and I should mention before we let this go, that there are two books coming out. The other is a book on Kim Stanley Robinson by Robert Markley. And the goal of the series, or one of the things we tell writers, is that these books should be readable by a smart undergraduate. Uh, they are not meant to be scholarly journal articles about the writers. They're supposed to be uh, books that are of interest to people who may know something about the writer, may have read one or two things, but want an overall uh, view of the work. They're, they're not literary. They're biocritical works is the term in the, in the trade. So the, the, the goal in all of these books has been to make them very readable. And to some extent, they have been. Uh, one of the books, one of the very first book in the series, uh, for example, by Jad Smith, was a book on John Brunner, which is now getting a lot of interest again because there have been a couple of articles about how Brunner's novels look a lot closer to today's world sure. than, than most fiction do. Uh, the book on Octavia Butler by Jerry Canavan is <clears throat> very accessible, very <coughs> readable. And to be honest, there are a couple of books in the series, which I, of course, had nothing to do with. I'm completely innocent here, that are less than optimum, perhaps. But I won't say what those are. Not, not like pleasurable reading. No, not like okay. pleasurable no, Well, actually, let me ask you, first of all, because when is the Rust book coming out? Is it like September or something? I believe it should be out by September. Uh, I think are you going to be publishing any excerpts online so people can find it and read it and stuff? Well, now you're going to have to send me back to discussions with the University of Illinois to find out I what we can should. do about that. I, 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 we'll I, talk about this in a moment. But once we're finished, because I think you, you, know, you should make some noise about this. I think this book is going, has the potential to be widely read and popular, so that's just me. Uh and since you're the only person I know who cares, who pay, no, that's, 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 he cares. That's, that's okay. not nice. Who whatever, pays attention? Whatever you're going to say is nice. I take that's not what I meant. I really meant who pays detailed yeah. attention. What non-fiction books in the science fiction field that you, you're aware of in 2019 should people be keeping an eye out for? There's my other pick for the for the Hugo Ballot, which I think is a shoe in for the Hugo Ballot, and I'm just curious mm-hmm. what else you are aware of that we should be keeping an eye out for. Obviously, you would. Talk up the Stan Robinson book you just mentioned, which you're, you're associated with publishing. Right. But anything else? I'm not altogether aware of what's coming out, to be honest. I have not gotten – I don't get as much nonfiction to uh, look at and review as I, uh, as I once did. So I'm not sure. Are there things you have in mind? No. I mean, there, keep I mean, in mind, I'm I, no I, longer – 
I'm no longer a professor. I don't have to read stuff that I don't want to read. <laughs> well, actually, no, there's the book which I believe will make the Hugo Ballad, and which, if mm-hmm. you've not, dear, dear listeners, you know, looked into, by all means do consider looking into it. That is Farah Mendelssohn's book on Robert Heinlein. Yes. I would expect that to be on the Hugo Ballad. It's been uh, received very warmly, I think, and has done very well, and is orderable out there in the world if you haven't read it. Um, and I think that and the, the Rust book are both going to be on the Hugo ballot. I'd be shocked if they weren't. And so it's just an interesting to see what else is around. But I, I too don't see much of this stuff. So maybe we need to get somebody to, to make some recommendations to us. Um, I see things. I mean, the, the other thing about the nonfiction ballot, one of the problems this year, for example, is that there's a book by Le Guin on the ballot. Uh, and it's a fine book. I've read it. It has almost nothing to do with science fiction. Hmm. But it's the last nonfiction book, well, probably not, but for now, the last nonfiction book by the great Ursula Le Guin. I'd be surprised if it doesn't win this year's Hugo, even though I think Alec Navallo Lee's book should. Uh, I think this well, is going also to happen. Joe Walton's well. book on the Hugos. And Joe Walton's book on the history of the Hugos is also a deserving book. So you've got two very good books. I'd be surprised if either of them win. Um, depending on the nature of voting, and I don't know what an Irish WorldCon voting pattern would look like. No, who knows? Uh, in the past, in the past, uh, sort of pop culture books about uh, the, I don't know, the, uh, the the art of Neil Gaiman or something like that, I think it was on the ballad as a nonfiction book one year. Yeah. Um, so, so, so that sort of thing is always going to pick up a lot of votes. Uh, there are going to be books about the Game of Thrones that might make it. There are going to be books about gaming, which some of which I'm sure are very good, uh, but I just don't know that world. Yeah, yeah. Well, we might wind up because we're just about at an hour and it is Mother's Day and I've got to go off and do some stuff. Um, but we're going to try and produce some episodes <laughs> during the rest of the year to make some and also to perhaps organize them a little bit better so that there's some kind of through line to the conversation. Well, the, 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 this one, in, in defense of our incoherence, uh, this one was catching up on a lot of tidbits that we have not been able to talk about for the last several weeks. The last recorded podcast, the last time we recorded the podcast, Gene Wolfe was still alive, uh, which it's, it's felt like a seismic shock to me because he's yeah. he lives close by. I'd known him for years and so forth and so on. And we were at this event about him last night. Um, so, yeah, we've touched upon a lot of things fragmentarily, and I think we were entitled to do so because we've been out of touch for so long. Yeah. Okay. Well, hopefully we'll talk next week. Uh, Australia will be be voting next week on our you know, to choose a new government, so that will take a little bit of time. We'll be using be our our world class democratic system that's so much better than your crazy one, and we will pick uh, you know a, a new government, and it'll all be good. And we will, meanwhile, hope we can get rid of the one we have. Revolution abides. That's nah, not going to work. It's not going to work. Nothing's going to work. <laughs>